we have got a lot to cover. I want to start really quickly with just a reminder on your book themes. This is your at-a-glance chart. This is what you are supposed to be working on, right? Kay brings it up every now and then. Oops, I see big eyeballs going, oh, yeah. But some, oh, good, good for you. I'm seeing some people throw, flashing them. That's good. All right, so don't forget to do this. This is one of those things that if you don't stay up with it, it'll get behind. And then once it gets too far behind, then it's almost like an impossible task. However, as I have said before, this for me is probably one of the most valuable tools I end up with at the end of any study I do. I love to have these, and I tuck them inside my Bible, and then anytime, anywhere, if the subject of Ezekiel pops up, I can pull this out of my Bible, out of the back of my Bible, and there I have before me a, a fairly good grasp of what it's about. Even if it's been four or five or eight or ten years since I studied it, this little at-a-glance chart is, is my tool to help me get my feet back where I need to be when I'm looking at it. So if you're not doing it, I strongly urge you to, to step in and get that work done. To take an extra day of study if you have to, to go back and clean it up. One of the things I thought was interesting was even this week, because we dropped into so many cross-references, I noticed that as I was flipping through, I would go through uh, um, my themes that I have developed for myself as I've studied, I would go back and just flip through the pages and look at my theme titles at the top, and I would, it helped me to kind of get my boundaries, and that's basically what this, this is. It's your at-a-glance chart. It's got your theme titles for each of your chapters, and once you've established the primary point, um, it helps you just kind of get your boundaries. Uh, you know, some of the Bibles have titles for you, but they title according to generally more a, a according to an event or something rather than a a point where precept we are training you to look for the author's purpose in that particular chapter and so it might be a slightly different kind of title than what you're going to find in some of your bibles like if you've got a king james that's just got a title for you so i encourage you to get get that out and make sure you keep up with that all right the other thing that we probably won't have a lot of time to work on together today, but I want to mention is your list that you're doing on Then You Will Know That I Am the Lord. I've already mentioned this to you almost every week, I think. Um, this is going to be, in the end, I think, the tool by which we are going to really see the major emphasis in this book, what the author's purpose is for writing and what it is that we need to most clearly see about everything that we've seen. You know, there has to be a golden thread that's running through this, right? And one of the things about history books we have found when, when we started this was that you don't handle history books in the same way as you do New Testament. In the New Testament, smaller epistles, when you do an overview, you, you go through the whole book, right? And you, and you, you see... Who's the author? Who's the recipient? You look for major key words that flow through the whole book, and that, then that rises to the surface, your, your major point, and then you're able to come up with the title. But you can't do that when you've got a book like Ezekiel with how many chapters in it? I can't remember now, 46 or 48 or something? 48 chapters. So it's impossible to do an overview with 48 chapters, right? and get that same kind of thing, number one. Number two, because it's a historical book, it's written differently, and you, you just ca you can't come up with the, that same um, procedure to end up where we want to end up. The, it is going to be more through 
what are the there is you are going to be looking for that repeated phrase that key repeated phrase that you see most often and so far i think what Kay is helping us to do is seeing that then you will know that i am the lord is that phrase have you noticed how it seems to be in almost every chapter then the Lord, he, there's the word, thus say, says the Lord. So he gives them a commandment or he gives them insight. And then he says that these are the things that, that they're doing and these are the things that I'm going to do. And then he says, and when I do them, what? Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I'm thinking that it looks to me like this is a, a essential key phrase in this book. So this look, this particular list that we are supposed to be doing is really important. Even though it's almost like secondary to your homework. Have you noticed? I mean, your homework, you got all this homework to do. She's not really emphasizing this, but every now and then she'll say, now, don't forget your list on. Thus you'll know I am the Lord. I really think this is probably more important than the emphasis seems to be in the homework statements, okay? So I'm going to give you a clue. Make sure this gets done, okay? And we'll see where it takes us. I'd how are y'all doing it? What kind of things are you finding out as you've done this list so far? Anybody got some great insights that as they have done this, then you will know I am the Lord? Hmm? Anything special? Pardon? There are a lot of them. It seems like there's at least one or two Per chapter, it seems like. There's only a couple of chapters where it, d it wasn't stated, but then it picks back up again, right? Absolutely. It certainly doesn't... Okay, so then that brings, up t that brings up then for me, again, the subject of... Well, there's actually two things. I was talking with Celeste on, about this yesterday. There's actually two kind of subliminal things going on for me right now, and, and I don't know about you all, but one is there seems to be a spiritual warfare message in this that's subliminal. It isn't the emphasis, it isn't the conversation, but what you see is there's something going on in the spiritual realm, right, of things that has an effect in the reality world, right, in the real world. Um, one of them was uh, Daryl Howell in the evening class. He brought up the fact that he, what really strongly struck him was the chapter where we saw the man in linen with the, with the writing case on his loins and that he went about marking certain people and then you're not to touch them, basically. And he said, I got to thinking about that. He says, you know, that wasn't a reality thing. It wasn't like somebody walked up to someone and marked them, right? So this was something happening in the spiritual realm. And so this got, for him, got him thinking about, and he said, well, Lord, so what is that about and what's going on there? And he said, the Lord woke him up the next morning and was sharing basically through, just through impressions in his mind that, that this is spiritual, this is the spiritual warfare which takes on, it, it takes place in the heavenly realm. And when he said that to me, I went, oh my gosh, you know, that's just like in the book of Daniel. Do you guys remember Daniel? When we did Daniel, we saw the same thing, the spiritual warfare, and it was sort of a subliminal thing. We never actually covered it as a, as a subject of study during that study, but it did come up where we saw, on the one hand, well, the major theme there was the, the sovereignty of God, right? And, it, and in there, the key subject is that God raises up kingdoms and he puts down kingdoms, right? 
well, as you were going through there, every now and then it would say, and I rose up to be a great support to this king. And then the, about two chapters later, and then I rose up to be a support for the other one against that one I had just been for. It doesn't say it in that way, but you, if you're paying attention, you pick up on it. And so what happens is you start to see, oh, there's spiritual warfare going on. And he talks in there in the book of Daniel about Michael rising up to be a support for, her, for Israel, right? the defender for Israel. So I started putting all that together then with what's going on in Ezekiel. I'm going, this is exactly right. There is a spiritual warfare which goes on in the heavenlies that takes place as as basically a, uh, a forerunner even to what happens here in the reality world that we live in. So we can be assured that in the heavenlies, God himself, Christ himself, the, uh, the angels of God are in a warfare on behalf of the nations of this world and, uh, and to accomplish God's purposes. We see Satan has to get permission, for instance, to come up against even an individual, right? Have you ever wondered why certain rulers or kings get to be in positions that they're in and you're like, how did that person ever get to be the president or the or the leader of that country or whatever. And and then you think, it has to be the Lord, right? And then you go back to Daniel and go, yep, it, it was the Lord because it says that he raises them up and he puts them down. So there's that little message there. And I just kind of throw that out to you as a, a point of interest for you to maybe ponder on a little bit as you're doing your homework. Pay attention to the subliminal message of the spiritual warfare that that is going on, the things that are happening in the spirit realm which affect what the physical world that we're actually talking about here. Yes? Right. Yes, yes, that is... Yeah, it would do that. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes. I Well, I'm just going to repeat what I said last week. You know, God, it's more important to God that you be holy than you be happy. And so, you know, it'd be great if we all learned our lessons through the happy moments in our life that th- that through happiness we would come to truly worship God and and pray hard and be fervent and be, you know, really pressing into him, but it doesn't seem to happen that way. It's really more when we're really sick, when there's a big tragedy, when the world seems to be falling apart or, or, or in the nations, things seem to be coming in oppressive oppression against us as a nation or us as an individual. It's in the hard times that we tend to really press into God, right? So, um, and I remember there was a song about that one time that, that she talked about, that in the song she sings about that it's in those dark places and in those hard times that she feels closest to God. I remember the words in that song, and I thought, that's so true. So, mm-hmm. He wants us to what? Yes, that's exactly right.
Yes, he does. Yeah, go back to the garden, Genesis 3, right? <laughs> yes. That's right. Yeah, yes, yes. And it does seem like, would you say that even as Christians, that it's not a lesson that we learn once and we're done? It seems like we, even in faith and even when we, we say that we love him, and yet do we continually seem to fall back into the ways of the world and into our old fleshly ways? And so it's like God has to constantly discipline. So I think about what it says in Hebrews uh, chapter 12 where it says, um, and therefore because you're a child, that because you're his son, he disciplines you. And, of course, no discipline at the time seems pleasant, right? But it is painful. However, if you will be trained by it, it produces a harvest of righteousness, which is what God wants. That's what the Lord wants. Now, ultimately, why does God want us who are called by his name to be righteous? That's right. It's all about God receiving the glory that's due him. And it's about us also when you, one of the subjects that came up this week was covenant, right? So in covenant, how, how, does, how does this relationship work as far as what we are living like and who he is and that we are in this covenant with him? We do. We're, if, you, if, the, if the two become one, just as in a marriage, which is why the idea of, of marriage in Ezekiel 16 comes up and he gives this, this analogy, which even we Gentiles can relate to. This is one we do get, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at the, although I got to tell you, in our world today anymore, our marriages, we, you know, we have an awful lot of infidelity that goes on. And we, t we tend to just go, eh. Right? We just don't seem to think, we're not so shocked about it anymore, and we just sort of let it go. But God considers it very grievous. Um, and one of the things that I think, I'm hoping by the time we're done today, that as we look at this subject of covenant and, and um, the seriousness of it, then that, that will help further help us to understand why God must punish what Israel had done. Right? Okay, so there, was, so there was the point of the spiritual warfare. There's the point of the, of the subject covenant that we saw this week. Um, the other thing was, and it it's, goes really hand in hand with a lot of this, and that is just simply the sovereignty of God. How we see that God is sovereign over the affairs of mankind on the whole. In other words, man, it, when man sinned in the garden, did God suddenly go, uh-oh, now what do I do? What did he have a plan? There you go. From before the foundation of the world, Jesus was really already crucified in the mind of God, was he not? So he already, from before the foundation of the world, he had a plan in place. So what that tells us is he is all-knowing. He has already foreseen things before they've happened. It's not a happenstance that, that God stumbles into and goes, oh, now I've got to figure something out. He already knew this. How, how does that help you and I as his children then to live in this world, knowing that we have that kind of a God that has already foreseen it and he's, and he's, in, he's got it in control? 
lots of, lots of, um, I think anyway, for me, it gives me the security of knowing somebody's in charge. Have you ever been in a, in a moment of crisis and somebody walks in the, in the room and they're just, they're, they're like this rock. There are certain people in your life that, oh, my, my husband is that for me always. You know, if, if things can be going really chaotic and he can just show up and all of a sudden I feel calmed. Why? Because, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, he's a rock, right? He's, he's in control. He's, he, he, yes, I can count on him to take care of matters. With God, it's even better. That's true. The computer, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Forget the computer. Although you still always rescue me, honey, because thank goodness he knows more than I do about those computers. But, but I think about God the Father in that way. When life is rocky and things are tough, isn't it a glorious thing to know about the character and the, the quality and attributes of your God that he has it all in control, he's sovereign over it, nothing is a surprise to him, he's got a plan, and it's a plan for your good, right? If we let him. It, it, well, obviously. For those <laughs> that love him, he is going, yes. And if you don't really love him, you're in trouble. But if you love him and you're in this covenant with him, you can trust that your God is the sovereign over it. So that is the other message I see in Ezekiel. Um, God has told this nation from before even, at, from the very beginning of its birthing, from the, from the, from, certainly from Mount Sinai as a nation, God told them, look, if you do this, I will do this, right? And it was, there was some real concrete, very, practical things that they were told this is how you do it this is i mean boy he left not he left nothing out have you ever read through leviticus it's like do it this way and do it on this day do it with this kind of a thing and this is what you look for and this is what you avoid and this is what you never do and i mean he laid it all out there was no guessing as to what was right or wrong god said this is right this is wrong do it my way I don't know. Why? You explain it. Okay. I don't know. I'm asking you back. I don't know. Why is Israel so complacent? Why are they so. Yeah. Do you think America is getting more and more like that? Yeah. <laughs> huh? Yeah, if it works for you, if it feels good, do it, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Yes. I mean, it is, it is to the point, like that child, our, our son, who said, I know I'm going to get in trouble, but I'm going to still do it. Yeah. Even though he knew exactly what was supposed to happen, he still did it. Yeah. And that, that's us. That's yeah. Yeah. And that's not prophecy coming forth. Doesn't it make you actually more in awe of our God then? Why he would bother? What mercy, what compassion, what long-suffering, what patience, what... What deep, deep love he has for us that he will endure, basically, all of our sinfulness and all of our faults for the sake of looking for a morsel from us in response of love and obedience. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. It's amazing love. Amazing, amazing grace. All right. Only the only God's love, yeah. Only that kind of a love. I mean, the the imagery that He's given us of Him being the Father and us being His child is 
is really a good one, but even in that, we only get a shadow because a father's love is never that pure, right? But God the Father, his love for us is so unconditional and so willing to forgive. And it's somebody brought up a minute ago that all he wants from us is to repent. He just wants us to say, yes, Lord, it, I see you and I want to obey you. Yes. And I think that this is one of those things that the people were seeing. And before any of this had happened, they had a holy king that had set them up back to righteousness. But the people chose evil. Yes. That's what they wanted. Yes. And I think it's important to note that this is not a judgment. It is against the evil, but even in right. Right. That's right. That's a good point, Lisa. Now, so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the, the two covenants that burst this nation. One was a covenant that was through an individual. So there's that individual Abrahamic covenant. But then we want to also look then at the covenant that was to a nation that was a, a national covenant. And it's distinctively different. We want to see how those are different. But also then what it is that the, how the Lord then takes these expectations of the of the covenant that he has with them. And then he brings these up to the to his points to them as to why he's having to judge them. Um, for those of you who have not done a covenant study, some of this um, we're going to kind of superficially go over. We're not going to be able to have the time, obviously. Covenant is a 12-week course in and of itself. But we're going to try to touch on it enough that you grasp it fully. And for most of us, this is just going to be fun. We're going to get to do kind of a memory lane trip here because we've done this before. Let's see, let me grab these markers here. Okay, let's start... Just so that we cover it, let's start with chapter 15. That was a very short little uh, segment, wasn't it? It was almost like, I know, chapter 15, this much, and you're going, okay. It's almost like they didn't know what to do with it. Where Should it go with 14 or should it go with 16? And then they just said, okay, we'll, we'll give it its own title. And they, it kind of falls in between. But it's very interesting. Um, t- tell me the picture that's going on here with, with chapter 15 and what was that all about it is a vine now tell me how is the vine described in the opening of this the first few verses yeah what's happened in this case he describes the wood of a vine and he says about it what has happened to it Right. Oh, I think that's interesting. That was the first thing. And I, did you all actually sit and ponder that a little bit in your mind? I mean, I had to think about it for a minute. You're right. Okay, the, the wood of a vine compared to a tree. Okay, like there's no comparison, first of all, right? Okay. It really, yeah, especially in and of itself. Now, if you take a vine that is bearing fruit... Then would you say it has a, a maybe even a higher degree of of purpose potentially? Although th- this this particular analogy didn't go there, but my mind said, yeah, if the vine is doing what the vine is supposed to do and producing fruit, like for instance a grapevine, right? Then that vine has some real value, doesn't it? Yeah. But apparently this is a vine that's not producing anything, or at least it doesn't indicate that it is. It just talks about the vine in and of itself, all by itself is pretty much valueless, right, without value. And so he says, then, not only that, but if you take that same vine, once you place it into the fire, 
to the point that it's been charred at both ends, there's still some left in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting. Think about the, the picture here. So we've got a vine. We, we have the vine, but if you actually look at the word, and the word usually is mentioned, it's the wood of the vine. Yeah, okay, the so wood. The wood of the vine is basically by itself kind of worthless. Right, it is. As, as a the wood. wood, right. So the wood is what, useless. And it says that at each end it's been charred, right? right. And there's something in the middle. So... Did, did this in any way strike you in relationship to what we know about what happens with, uh, with Israel, how it is, it's taken under siege? How many sieges are there? Three, right? So we have, we have a siege here, we have a, we have a siege here, and we have a siege here, right? Now, it talked of, so uh, to me, although I'm not saying that it's in this exact order, but I thought about, oh, that's interesting. Two of the sieges, actually, we could put it this way. Okay, so what he's saying is about this part of the vine that did not get burned up initially, what? What did he say about it? Yeah. In verse 7, he says, although it came out of the fire, what? Yeah, okay. But the, it's going to what? Yet the fire will consume it so in other words what were they what was God saying about Israel's mindset about what had happened to them in relationship to uh, the predecessors here yeah yeah they did and we saw that back through analogy before about a pot right they thought they were in a pot and safe right because they were Jerusalem previously it talked about Jerusalem being in a pot, right? So they're the pot, and they thought they were safe, correct? And so now they're saying, well, we, and, and actually they were kind of scoffing, weren't they, at the, uh, the other parts of Jerusalem, parts of Israel that had already gone into their captivity. And he talked to one, uh, in that one about the pot. He says, well, let them build their houses. We're in the pot, right? We're safe, right? So what does this analogy then basically hem up or, or strengthen in regards to that previous um, imagery of, the, of Jerusalem being the pot? And God said, well, it doesn't matter that you're the pot. I'm going to still take care of you, right? So now here he's talking about them as being the vine. So he gives them an, another analogy. He says, now you're the, you're the vine. He talks about the vine, number one, being worthless basically, right? It's of no value. The wood of the vine, I know. Okay. That's a pretty important distinction, though, because he's, he's talking about Israel kind of in a sense of, like, you're like the wood of the vine. Yeah. You know, and as you're, when you're a vine of Jerusalem, as you say, as you're, you're as something, but as wood without the wood, you're worthless. Right. 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 Okay, yes. So I'm going there with you. I'm just not saying the whole thing, but you're right. Okay, the wood of the vine, he's saying about the wood of the vine, in essence, it's worthless. And especially it's worthless once the two ends have been charred, right? Yeah. And in this case, we know that two sieges have taken place. It's been charred at two ends. There's only one piece of it still left. These are the guys who said we're in the pot and we're safe, right? And so now he says in this particular analogy, he says of of them, the, 
you are going to know that I am the Lord. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I do what? Yeah, exactly. I will set my face against them, and though they have come out of the fire, do you see how he's saying they came out of the fire? They they didn't hit it on the first two sieges. They managed to. It's kind of like when you have downsizing in a company. You don't get the first hit, maybe. You don't get the second hit, but guess what? By the third hit, you're all gone. The company's now totally revamped it, and it's got all new employees, and you guys are out that were there previously, right, in, in that scenario. Well, here's what, that's exactly what he's saying here. He said, you're this worthless piece of wood, and you've been charred at two ends, and now do you think you're safe? Do you think you're really still in that pot? Uh-uh. He said, I'm going to take you out. So how did you title chapter 15? <laughs> yeah, doomed. <laughs> I will make the land desolate. Now that would certainly be th- that would certainly show that wood totally gone, right? That it had not m- missed. I thought it was interesting. We talked about um, this wood being fuel for the fire, right? So there's that imagery of that fuel going into the fire and that they are that fuel so I will make the land desolate because why they have acted unfaithfully verse 8 that's right okay so fire will consume them chapter 15 fire will consume them or anything along those lines You can do it that way too, yes. Them being Jerusalem. Because they had thought previously that they were safe, had, hadn't they, back in... Was that chapter 14 that we, was the pot? Was it the one that we just came out of? It's been so long ago, a whole week. Um, no, that wasn't it. Where was the pot at? What chapter was that, guys? Do we remember? I know, a long time ago. It was at least a week ago. Um, Let's <laughs> see, the baggage was in 12. Where was that pot? Does anybody remember? 10 or 11? I don't see it. Yeah, there you go, 11-3. Is it not? Is it not time near to build houses? This city is the pot. We are the flesh. See there, what I'm talking about. So that's back in uh, chapter 11. I'll just put that on here. This was chapter 11, since so you can remember that. So we, in a way, what we're seeing is just a repeat from a different perspective. It's a different analogy, but now he's saying, "Look, you thought you were safe, but you're not." Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, the one thing about these titles is um, all of the, because it's one of the reasons why Kay asked us, I think, to do this list, and then you will know that I am the Lord. And I had added, thus says the Lord God, to my particular chart. Um, Because there's a lot of becauses and whys and the motivations behind this, what they, the things that they did and what God was expecting of them. There's all these additional details that could definitely go into your title as well. So fire will consume them, and you could put on there because of their unfaithfulness. 
you can add that as additionally because of Do you like that better? Absolutely. It is good. Absolutely. And certainly we've, we've pretty much beat that over the head. We've seen that already over and over and over that the problem here is what kind of, tell me the things that we've seen with Israel so far. What kind of things have they been doing? Idolatry. Uh, idolatry. Rebellion. Pardon? Abominations. Sacri oh my gosh, this week we got into seeing again that sacrifice of children even to Molech, yes. So we definitely know it's because of unfaithfulness. So fire will consume them because of unfaithfulness in chapter 15. So now we're ready to go into 16 and take a look here. Chapter 16, um, I'm trying to decide here. Yes. I have a question. Uh-huh. Okay. Right, and you have to abide in him and stay in him to, in order to produce fruit. Correct, correct. Well, you know, I think that on the whole, God has always called Israel divine. Remember, I think it was last week's homework we, where we went back in the Old Testament and looked to see where God himself referred to Israel as his vine, which he planted. So, yeah, there, the imagery there of the idea of a vine and that vines are to... That's why I had said earlier, what is a vine supposed to be doing? Producing fruit, right? And he said that of Israel in, like in Ezekiel and... Um, I think in Jeremiah, there were some other verses that we went and looked at. I can't remember all the verses, what they were. But we went and looked at them. We saw where God called them his vine. And that his purpose for them was that they bear good fruit. And they obviously weren't doing this. At this point in chapter 16 of Ezekiel, he's saying, you're, not, you're no longer a vine, but you're just the wood of the vine. That's how worthless to that state that they had gotten in and not only that but you're not just the wood of the vine but you're the wood of the vine that has been charred at both ends and he's reminding them i believe of the fact that there's already been two sieges and he's saying you're not going to miss the fire you are going to the fire will consume you you are fuel for the fire and he's saying you have not escaped just because i've been patient do, do you not see this as the patience of the lord um in the New Testament, talks about um, uh, that f that phrase about the slow lo the slowness of the Lord. Don't count it as slowness, but rather patience. Right? Why? What does God desire? He desires that all men come into faith, that they would all come to love Him and follow Him. And so, the patience of the Lord is salvation for those who are slow at getting uh, you know on board with that with that agenda and so he's waiting patiently uh we're going to see here as we as we get into this first covenant that we're going to look at now we're going to see that even when god was giving israel her land right yes. had he been patient even with those who were previously upon the land yes, yes he has okay let's look at that 
first thing I want to do is I want to bring to your attention in chapter 16 is a phrase that uh, Kay didn't ask us to mark it, but I'm hoping you did. That was that phrase about you were naked. Did you all see that nakedness? And that's kind of where I bounced off of. I put on here for our first um, column to cover is I covered your nakedness. And so you became mine, right? When he says, I covered your nakedness, what is the implication there? What is he talking about, the subject? What did he do? Yes. Okay. Okay, good. All right, so Raquel went right away to where I, my mind went to, which was back into Genesis. The original mention of the word being, of being naked and, and, and our understanding of what that's talking about is found back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve are in the garden and Adam and Eve sin, right? Previous to that, it had said that they were naked and what? Unashamed, right? They had no shame. But once they committed this sin where they had disobeyed God, then they, then they did what? In chapter 3, verse 10, what did Adam do when, when, uh, after they had sinned? What was he doing? He was hiding. He was hiding. When the Lord said to him, where are you? He said, I'm, I'm hiding because what? Because I'm naked and I'm afraid, right? So he was afraid and naked. So he's naked, afraid. Afraid and naked because of sin. And that's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. We see that's, I mean, there's more of it than just verse 10, but all throughout in there, you see the idea of naked and being afraid because of their sin. And so as you move into that story, then what is the next thing that God does for them to take care of that problem? He covers them. So then... We see, um, basically, there's a promise of something there, though, to, to Eve. Do you remember what the promise is to her? What is he going to provide for her one day? A seed. That's the first mention of a seed. And I think that's important because when we get into Genesis to look at the birthing of the nation of Israel, we see a seed come up again, don't we? The mention of a, the promise of a seed. So they're afraid and naked because of sin. Here... God promises a seed. At that point, and that seed is going to do what? Okay, one day it's going to take care of the problem of the enemy who came in and tempted her to go into that place of sin, right? And then the last thing then we do is what does God do for them? Because they're naked now. Now what does he do? Well, he does exile them. You're right. It's an interesting picture, too, isn't it? Because they've come into this place of sin. The place of the garden is a symbolic picture of the promised land, right? Yeah, and pure. And that place where, yeah, the righteous will dwell. And God exiles them because of what? Because of sin. So, boy, there's a lot of imagery and pictures in that alone. So, when my mind, when he first mentioned the word nakedness, did you guys mark the word naked in your homework? on your observation worksheet, the fact that you were naked. And then he says in verse 8, and I covered your nakedness. And when he said, I covered your nakedness, how did he cover their nakedness? 
Yeah. He said, and in verse 8 of Ezekiel 16, he did what? I spread my skirt over you and I covered you and I entered what? Into a covenant with you. Now, that's where the subject of the covenant comes up and it ties right into what we're seeing in Ezekiel as we look little by little progressively through chapter 16 at their history because that is that not what he said in the beginning of the of the chapter what did you title verses one through five what was it that god okay i saw you and i had pity now that is one of the points he says that they did not do but this is what i did i had pity on you but what does he say he says thus says the lord god to jerusalem and what is the thus that he said in verse two uh, three so what is god trying to remind them of at this point their origin yeah your, I want you to pay attention, Israel, and I want you to remember where you came. Would you say that that's something that you and I need to do on a regular basis in our relationship with God is take stock of where, where we came from? Yes. How often in your spiritual journey do people say journal things because it helps to see where you've come from and where you are, right? It does a couple of things for you. Number one, it keeps you on the straight and narrow. Number two, it reminds you of where you were and where you are now so that you're thankful, right, that you retain a thankful heart. It also helps you not to go back and make the same mistakes, right, hopefully. Hopefully. Correct? (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly, hopefully. Okay, so going back then to Genesis, we see that when they realized they were were afraid and they were naked because they had sinned, and God promised that he was going to one day send them a seed, but that in the the meantime, is their nakedness handled? It wasn't at that point, but then what did God do to handle it? That's right. The Lord made covering. And, and it says he made coverings of skin. Now, how do you get coverings of skin? There you go. The ha- what, what indicate, what's indicated there is what was shed. Blood was shed. Blood was shed to cover their sin. Does that... Are you seeing that? Isn't that interesting? So that's in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 21. So we see the first shedding of blood for covering of sin. Now, in 2 Corinthians, at the end of our homework, right at the very day, let me, let's just go back and look at this. 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3, Kay asked us to look and and make a, a, a comparison of what we have been looking at throughout the whole week in, in Ezekiel 16. But what I want to do is start there because in verse 3, it makes mention of Eve in the garden, right? And what, how does it tie us back to that? What does it say in that verse 3? What does he say? Does somebody have that uh, available to read? 2 Corinthians, Corinthians 2 and 3. Pardon? Yes. So in chapter um, 11 of 2 Corinthians, he's talking to them about the fact that you are, you and I, in this New Testament covenant, we also are betrothed, right? That we have a husband who is going to be our husband, who is Christ. Right now we're in that betrothal years. We're waiting for him to come back to take us to 
go to heaven for the marriage itself, right? In the meantime, we're in a betrothal state and we are to be pure to him, to be chastened unto him, right? That's what she, she showed us, to betrothed to one husband, to Christ. I might present you as a pure virgin. That's the goal, is that we would be presented to Christ one day as this pure vir- virgin. But he says, but, but I am afraid. I'm afraid that you're going to get deceived just like Eve did in the garden. Do you see it? Isn't that interesting that he, that the, one of the verses that we went back to actually takes us right back to the first time of nakedness before that, or, that original sin happened when he says, in, or when the original sin happened. And he says, um, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, I'm afraid for you that your minds will be led astray from, from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. So that's our ultimate goal, and that's the goal that God had for Israel as a nation, was that they would have a simplicity and a purity of devotion to God, their Yahweh, right? And so we're going to look then, when we see the idea of being naked, in Ezekiel uh, 16, verses 8, and also in 10 to 14, then what we see God doing then is covering their nakedness there. He speaks of them as a nation, and he says of them, I covered your nakedness. So interesting that he would say that, because what does that then tell you about them in their origin? Sin. Yeah. Sin seemed to be the, uh, the dominant message here through the picture, through the imagery of nakedness. He's saying, I took you a sinner, and I took you for my own. And in doing that, I covered you, and he covered them how? By, com- by entering into what with them? into a covenant through the entering of a covenant with him he covered them right and therefore he said when he covered them in 10 through 11 what does he say he was giving to them basically huh okay yeah status and in 10 and 11 he calls it his what because of my what my he didn't say glory but it's the same word my splendor because of my splendor, which he goes on to talk about the fact that it's my splendor that I gave you. I covered you with covenant, and in doing that, I, g- I gave you my splendor. Now, tell me what you know about covenant relationships. What is, that, what is he saying there has happened? Two have become one. And in coming into covenant with God, what do we get to have from him? Yeah, we get his glory, don't we? We get his identity. Okay, the image, the image in this chapter is all about what subject? Covenant and marriage, right? In particular, marriage. And he goes on later and he says, he calls her what? An adulterous wife. Well, yeah, he calls her a harlot, yes. But he also specifically, yes, he calls her a, a lot. <laughs> yes, he does. He used that as a definite key repeated <laughs> phrase. But in particular, he calls her an, a, an adulterous wife, right? So if the picture here is about adultery and about marriage and about um, the identity that we get through into coming into covenant with God, then what he's saying here is, is you have my splendor, right, because of covenant. And therefore, in that, you have taken on who I am, and that's why you are supposed to be representing that to the world, to become one. 
So what you and I can do in this particular analogy is just put our brains into the place of a physical marriage that we understand because now we can really relate to this particular analogy this is one of the few in ezekiel that we shouldn't have any problems saying i get i get what the message is here he's talking about a covenant with this nation yes it is yes it is Yes, you know what? We could very easily take a little detour at this point and go into Hosea and read the entire book of Hosea. And if you have time in a devotional time, it would be beneficial to do that. Uh, Kay Arthur has a book out uh, that uses that, that analogy through the, through the book of Hosea of Israel and how uh, God, God commanded this, this uh, prophet to go and marry a harlot. And then how this was to be a picture then to Israel of what God did with them. Is that not absolutely what he's saying here? He said, I took you, you were naked. So you can write above naked, you can write sinners. You started out there, that's where you were. And when I came into relationship with you, you were naked. You and I were in the same place when we came into our faith walk with God. We were naked, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so that's where Kay then took us into all these cross references to go back to see where did that all start. One of the things that she took us into was in that Genesis uh, chapter 15, where it, where we when we do our our covenant study we do so much work in there about the concept of what is a covenant and how, it, how it's made and what, what are the different qualities of it and so forth. In there, we see God calling Abraham into his covenant. And, the, and one of the things we see is the, the mention of all of those pagan nations, but which, by the way, Abraham is brought out of to enter into his... He came from where? Where did he come from? land of the chaldeans of the earth who's the problem here that's coming against israel right now the same chaldeans that he was birthed from isn't that interesting that's like wait a minute the people who i came from are now hating me because i'm now another nation but he's been covered by the lord he's been he's been placed into this covenant relationship with the lord and he says i covered your nakedness and he and then he gives that little statement i swore to you that's talking about what covenant that's a covenant vow and then he says and i entered covenant with you okay so that gets us started with where we want to go from this point for forward for this morning we want to then focus today on looking at the idea of who this nation was as as a birthed nation by god he entered into this covenant with him. So Kay took us into cross-references. So you might want to pull out um, those pages or those passages where you went into Genesis 12 and 13 and 15. Hopefully you have those printed or available that will be easy access. Just flip your Bibles open. What we see is the very first, who did God make his very first covenant with as far as this nation is concerned? Abraham. So we start with the Abrahamic covenant. 
Yep. <laughs> All right, so we have the Abrahamic covenant. Tell me what we know about the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, you looked at verses 1 through 3. Okay, I'll make a great nation. So the promises were a great nation of you. That's one thing. And make your name great. Make your name great. In making him a nation, he certainly would make his name great, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, that was, the nation quality was in verse 2, but he also told him something else in verse 1. And go where? To the land that I will show you. So what was the first promise of that new covenant that he was going to enter in him, to him with? He was promising him a land, right? A land I will show you. Okay. And then he says to him in verse 3 then what is he going to do there besides making his name great he's also going to do something for him bless him and then through blessing him what will happen yeah in you i will bless oh i gotta fix this in you all the families of the earth will be blessed Okay, that's in verse, th so it's in you, the earth will be blessed, right? All the families of the earth will be blessed. So they, basically there are three things that God is promising him right. here. A nation, a land, and that he will somehow bless the earth. Right. Now we go into Genesis 13, I'm going to not write it down, but in Genesis 13 he reiterates again, that he's going to enter into this covenant with him, which he hasn't done yet, but he's talking about it, right? And he says in Genesis 13, 12 to 16, he's going to do what for him there? What did you see reiterated? And what new piece of insight do you see? Okay, through your descendants. So he talks about descendants, and then does he give a time factor for how long this particular covenant will be? forever that's very interesting so you can draw yourself a little clock and put on there 13 uh, verse 15 and say that it is going to be a forever covenant right a forever promise all right then we move into the ultimate of all the verses which is chapter 15 and Kay had us only looking at 1 through 6, but I also added verse 18 in order to cover what Kathleen brought up about the, the, the nations through which this nation was actually birthed and out of which it was birthed. So we see in Genesis 15, he says to him, where will his heir come from? From his own loins. What, what was going on with Abraham at this point? He had no child, and he and he was worried that some that his. Uh, uh, but he was afraid that 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 
all that he had, everything that he had accumulated thus far, would be passed on to his, his servant's children, right? Or to his servant itself. So he says, but God corrected him in that in verse 4. He says, no, from your own body an heir will come, right? And then he repeats again about how great his, his heritage is going to be. And he says, that how, what does he compare his heritage to? the stars he says as numerous as the stars are so shall your descendants be then it says in verse six what i love this one okay some of you did not do covenant with me and we're zipping through this pretty quickly but you tell me what do you think it means when it says that abraham believed in the lord and the lord reckoned it to him as righteousness that was his day of salvation. Now, this is interesting because a lot of people say, yeah, 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 but Abraham had already come out of the land of Chaldeans. He had already been following the Lord for all these years. He was already being obedient to God. Wasn't he already saved? No. Apparently not. So what does that tell you about everything up to this point in his life? Yeah, it was a, the, the journey into his faith. There was a, Would you say that each one of us have a journey that we that, that even... I can tell you, I grew up in a Christian church, and in my faith walk to God, I spent a lot of years hearing about God, even obeying God, uh, doing the things that would please the Lord, but I did not do them in my faith. I just did them, you know. I did them either out of compliance to my family situation or out of just a desire to be a part of what looked good to me, you know, that church Uh, environment was pleasing to me it felt good to me so i did it for those reasons why what motivated abraham it doesn't tell us it just simply says that the lord spoke to him and he did it okay but what we do know is at this up to this point he had not come yet into his faith he was in that journey to his faith but he wasn't yet in faith and he says in chapter uh, Genesis fifteen six, he says, and then at this point, when God gives him, reiterates again for about the third time now, the fact that he is going to promise him a land, a seed, and a nation. And it says, and then he believed the Lord, and it was reckoned as righteousness. It also shows that his obedience was faith. Yeah. It was that's right in this case it was what that saved him his faith believing God to reckon now does somebody know where in the New Testament we would get our commentary on this so that we could see okay <laughs> apparently there are a lot of places where is the actual commentary, though, that tells us about this day when this covenant was made with God? Does anybody remember that? Galatians 3. Oh, you are cheating. You got my notes. You are not fair. Yes. <laughs> Galatians 3. Somebody go there. Galatians 3, verse 6. <laughs> He's so good. You are good, honey. Woo. I know, he's got some good, I didn't know you picked up those notes, but you did good. No, I printed two and I had an extra one and I had laid it downstairs on the chair because I was going to show him something and then we never got around to talking again. But 
Galatians 3, verses 6 to 9. Somebody read that for me real quick, because I want to show you how this is actually commentary on this Genesis chapter 15. So is it not, be- is it, is it not the best in the whole world when God actually tells you what he meant by certain things when he gives us his own commentary and he refers back to something like this event that's recorded in Genesis and he explains it to us what was going on this is the best way to get your insight and you really have to read the whole totality of chapter three to get the fullness of it but I just want to see these first these three verses chapter uh, Galatians 3 verses 6 to 9 who's got that and wants to read Okay, Diane, thank you. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are in, in as, excuse me, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would testify, would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So when he said to him back here in Genesis chapter 13, all the families of the earth will be blessed in you, he was preaching to him what? The gospel. Now, how do we know the go- it's the gospel? And what is the gospel about? Who do we know the gospel to be about? Jesus himself. So let's go down to verse 16 and see where we see yet one more statement that makes it absolutely clear that he was giving him the gospel. What, somebody read that. You want to go ahead and read that 16 too, Diane? Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seed as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. Wow. So Galatians chapter 3 tells us then, the, when he says to him, I'm going to give you, make you a nation, I'm going to give you a land, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He said in Genesis 15 he was going to give him a seed of his own body to begin with, but that seed eventually would take him to who? To Christ. And we see that in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to t- put on here 6 to 8 and then uh, the conclusion of it is seen, or actually came all the way to nine, six to nine. And then the last one, the big hurrah statement is in verse 16 where it says, and that seed is Christ. Okay? And Romans chapter four has a pretty good job. Yes, it does. You're right. So let's put that on here. Romans four is another one you can go and look at. Now, this is really interesting because what is it that God had promised to Eve back here in Genesis 3.15? A seed, a seed who would one day do what? Crush the head of Satan. And down here then we see in Galatians, 50, or, yeah, in Galatians 3 that the seed that was promised is Christ. And then we go back then to Genesis and we see, and Abraham believed God when he said, I'm going to bless you and that through you all nations will be blessed and he promised him a seed of his own body and that he would make of him this great nation and give him this land so he made all these promises but in the midst of those promises was that seed again and he says and that seed is christ and abraham believed god and it was credited to him as righteousness so in that day he received his salvation and he did it by believing god right So this is the birthing of this nation, Israel. Isn't that an amazing thought to go back that far and look at their beginnings? He started with with a whole nation, 
Did he take a whole group of people and say, I'm going I'm to make you guys my nation? One person. Does it, does it not make sense to you now where he told Abraham, leave your whole family behind, and then when he brought Lot with him, it kind of messed up the waters a bit, caused a problem? He says, I'm, I am going to make of you a great nation. So uh, he concludes in verse 18 of Genesis, and I want us to go to Genesis. Let me see if I've got it in here. Uh, no, I've got to look it up. Genesis chapter uh, 15, verse 18. What does he say at the end of that? Because just in case you've never studied it, you may not really see what's going on in that Genesis 15 right off the top. But what does he say in verse 18? And there came the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Okay, and go ahead and read the, the next verse too. To your descendants. And the Hittite and the Parasite and the Parasite and the Rephaim and and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Gershite yeah and the Jebusite all those ites right now do any of those names sound familiar from what we said what we looked at in Ezekiel chapter sixteen oh yeah. When he talks about them from their sister, from their heritage, from that which they came from, one of the things he mentions is that the, the Amorite and the, um, the Hittite, right. So here we see it back in Genesis where God makes that initial covenant with Abraham, this Abrahamic covenant. He enters into a covenant on nine. These are some points I would just want to bring out because I think they're really important. In this particular covenant, we see... Oops, that one's a dry. Okay, you tell me in the Abrahamic covenant, what are some qualities about this covenant that we know? What do we see about um, how he enters into it and how long is it going to last and um, through whom is it made and so forth? Give me some qualities about this particular covenant that are going to be distinctive for us to, to know. Okay, it's It's forever. Mm-hmm. Okay, but when it was made, was it was it was made to promise him a nation? But wh- who was it made through? Through one man. It was made through. An, it was an individual covenant with an individual, right? Not with a nation, but with a, with an individual. Okay. What else do we know about it? What is the result of it in this case? What we saw in verse six. It resulted in what for Abraham? Salvation, okay? It results in salvation. This particular covenant does. Um, is it conditional? No. Did he say, I'm going to give you a land to seed to nation if... No. No, he didn't. So we, we saw it was unconditional. Would you say that's unique? Okay, it's a God promise, meaning it's grace, right? It's, it's unconditional on the part of man, but it's purely God's grace. He is going to do this. I will. Well, and, and God said that he would take the punishment for it if the covenant broke. 
Right, which it wasn't because then Jesus fulfilled it, right? Exactly, exactly. So it's God's promise, which, by the way, God never breaks his promises, right? His, his word is yes and amen, and that's one of the things that we're seeing as a repeated phrase in the book of Ezekiel is how God says, he, he says, and thus, thus it is, or thus saith the Lord, and then you will know that I am the Lord when I do these things, Right. And so, so in the Abrahamic covenant, we see that it's a forever covenant. It's an individual covenant. It results in salvation. It's unconditional. And it's God's promise, meaning it's a grace covenant, right? All right, so we got some basics down about that. Then let's move into the early years, because that was the next thing that we looked at in, in Ezekiel 16. Starting in verse 8 of Ezekiel 16, and really, you can go all the way through 14, even though it does break down into smaller uh, paragraph divisions. But still, let's look at that general area there. Because these are the early years then of, of this nation, correct? And so she took us in to see, she took us into Exodus, and then later she took us into um, some, um, or later we're going to go into the, oh, no, that's to the next thing. She took us into Exodus 3. So let's look there first. We're going to do the Abrahamic covenant. Next, we're going to do the early years. What happened? This was very interesting. What happened to Israel as a nation once God made this covenant with him? I'm going to make you a great nation. And then what happened to him? Isn't that weird to you guys that he would, that God would say to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And then he would send them into Egyptian captivity, that the people would end up in captivity. How long were they in captivity? 400 years. Did God tell him about that? Did he forewarn him in any way? Where did he forewarn him about that? Yeah, right then in Genesis chapter 15 when he cut the initial initial covenant with him. He tells him about it. He, he Go back into uh, verse 13 of, of Genesis 15. What does God say to Abram at the time that he makes this initial covenant? And then he says in verse 14, but? Yeah. And he talks about that he's going to bring them out and he is going to give them that land eventually. So God does tell Abraham that he's going to have, his descendants will have this time of captivity, right, for 400 years. Why is God delaying his blessing to Abraham of this land and this seed? Isn't that amazing? I just think it's amazing. And I, do, you, do you see how that message actually ties into what we see in Ezekiel 16? What does he say at the close of Ezekiel 16 about these people that, um, that are called his sist- her, the sisters to uh, Israel? Hmm? Do you see a, a correlation between what God was doing in Genesis 15 where he told him, he said, look, I'm going to give you this land, but before I give it to you, you're going to go into captivity for 400 years because why? The sins of the Amorite have not yet been fulfilled, right? So he's saying basically there's a time here of grace I'm giving to the people of this land yet. I'm not done being patient with them and their sin, correct? 
And so he's giving them time yet to repent. Now, who's living, who is in the land at that time? Does anybody remember a guy named Melchizedek? Do you remember Melchizedek? So Melchizedek was God, a, 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 a priest of God Most High. He was on the land at the time of Abraham being there. So the people, the Amorites, were they hearing about Yahweh? Yeah, it wasn't like they were just out there without the word of God and without knowledge of God. They had it. So God was being patient. He said, look, I'm going to put you in captivity 400 years and then I'm going to bring you out. When you come out of your captivity, then I will give you the land because their sin is not yet to its fullness, right? I haven't expended my patience with them yet, (laughs) which I think is such a great thing. So then in starting in verse 53 then of ezekiel 16 he talks about these sisters sodom and samaria right so who is sodom and who is samaria yes we all know about sodom don't we sodom and gomorrah as a matter of fact when he talks about um sodom here what does he say uh about their opinion of them in this particular paragraph yeah, definitely look down on this. As a matter of fact, did they ever even talk about them really? It was almost like they were the they were the family member that you're so embarrassed about that you don't even mention. They're the black sheep of the family, exactly. He says in fifty six, as the name of your sister Sodom was not heard from your lips in the day of your pride. In other words, when you thought you were all that hot stuff, you thought you were doing so well before me. You didn't even talk about Sodom that black sheep family member that you're embarrassed about right but what does God say here that he's going to do with these family members that was Sodom who's Samaria by the way those northern 10 tribes of Israel they're being uh, personified basically through the the title of Samaria now what do we know about Samaria and how do the Jews consider the Samaritans They really looked down on them. In fact, remember in the days of Jesus, he was actually almost chastised by his disciples for even speaking to the woman at the well who was a Samaritan. Because why? They don't like the Samaritans. They considered them second-class citizens. They were half-breeds, half for one thing, for intermarrying. But the imagery here that's going on is that, that Samaria at that time, this was the beginning of Samaria that we know in the days of Jesus later. Samaria had become a byword almost or a, or a second-class citizen of Israel. And they looked down upon, those in Judah looked down upon those in Samaria, right? They sure did. They sure did. When we got into uh, Kings, for, was it second? Hold on a second. Let me look here which reference it is. Second Kings 16. And we were looking at that King Ahaz. Do you remember? And what did Ahaz tell us in that particular account? He talked about he went to where? Damascus. And when he got to Damascus, what were they doing there? What did they have there that he came back and copied? An, art, an altar, right? So they were actually worshiping, yeah, an altar. They had an altar at Damascus that he went there and saw. Now you tell me what's the problem with them having an altar at Damascus? Yeah. What did we learn earlier about God choosing of the place for worship? Only at the place which I shall 
choose and which I shall show you, shall you worship me, right? So God had chosen the place of his worship. He had designated to be Jerusalem. And here we see in this record in 2 Kings with King Ahaz, um, by the way, um, um, Carol, I'm sorry, your name was a blank. I do know you, Carol, very well. <laughs> Why does that happen? I don't know. But Carol was showing me a list of her, um, I'm in my Bible thinking is why, but uh, she was showing me a list of her kings that she has. She has a whole, a whole list of in the order of their kingship and telling you who's good and who's bad. And in there she, show, she found Ahaz in the list of things. And it was showing you then this lineage of doing good and then doing bad, of going, doing good and then doing bad. Ahaz was what? Bad. bad guy. He had gone up to Damascus. He saw an altar there. He thought it was cool. And so what does he do? He sends word back to Jerusalem and says, build me one just like this. All right? So we see that in this in this picture that we're getting we're beginning to draw up to the surface of the history of israel is they were birthed they were brought out of the land these these pagan countries the amorites and the hittites and so forth and they were supposed to be wed to god god covered them covered their nakedness covered their sin by relationship with them gave him his them to them his identity of splendor and he began to bless them. And then as, as time passed, then we begin to see them falling away into that. But we do see one thing that's really cool. Just like at the beginning, when he establishes his relationship with Israel through Abraham, he is patient in taking that land away from the enemy, from the, those who are not his, to give it to his own. He's patient in that. He doesn't just go in and, you know, I do think that there's a false uh, kind of a false message out there that God is just a warring God that he came in and he wiped out people, men, will, women, and children, and it makes him sound what? Ruthless. Angry, mean, heartless. Yeah, but in reality, when you look at the, at the details of what God gives us in his word, we see that he says, I'm going to put you, my children, where? into captivity for 400 years while I wait on the people of that land to repent. Which, did they? No, they never did. But in Ezekiel 16, what does he say he's going to do for them one day? He's going to restore them. So what we see is throughout history, God, God reaching out to restore and then people falling away and him reaching out to restore and God and then falling away and him reaching out to restore and then falling away. So this, would you say this is a repeated ha- pattern for people? Yeah. So God isn't just, you know, when people think about Israel and they go, well, yeah, but they're God's chosen people. They're his special people. So people get the, the idea or the understanding that God gives them such special favoritism when, when it's really not true. He loves who? He loves the whole world for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish. Right. So he desires that all of us, every human being come into faith. And right now, what do we see about Israel as a nation? What are they doing right now? Are they in faith with God? Have they believed on this, this, this promise that he gave to Abraham of that Christ, that seed that would come? 
they are not, they're still waiting for that, aren't they? They're still waiting for that Christ to come. But we see in Ezekiel 16, as we go toward the end of it, we see that God is yet again going to restore them. He's talking about that right here in Ezekiel 16. He said, in the same way, I'm going to restore you and I'm going to restore them. That is a cool thought in your mind. And it's a little more piece of the puzzle for the end time activities of what God is going to be doing in the world at that time, how he's going to still be drawing all men to himself. Okay, all right, so now we've got the early years. Now let's go in and let's look at the, um, so we now know about Abraham's descendants, where they came from, because we saw that in Ezekiel chapter 16. Um, I love the way that this is all laid out here. As for your birth on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths, nor no eye took pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. And I think about their Egyptian captivity, how he made a promise to them initially and he told them, and I'm going to enter into a covenant. And he does enter into that covenant in verse 8. But he allows them to be cast off, to not even be rubbed down with salt. And all of the appropriate things taking, that are usually given to a newborn are not yet given to them. It's a delayed uh, blessing that comes to them. Right? Mm-hmm. All right. So we see that in those verses there. Then in se- 6 and 7, what does God say that he actually gives to them? in this covenant that he's going to make with them. Life. I gave you life. So he says in 1 to 5, make known to Jerusalem her origin. 1 to 5, make known her origin. And then in 6 to um, 7, he says, I gave her life, right? Then you get into 8 to 14, and what, where, what comes up there? The covenant. He says, and the Lord inner covenant with you. Yeah. So he's reminding them of the fact that he entered into this covenant, and with that covenant comes blessing, comes protection, comes all these things. Then we hit in 1522, what? What does the Lord do there? He said, I'm sorry, say that again? Yes, we see her. He, he, he begins to use the word harlotry in there. And what is it that the emphasis is on in this part of the harlotry? Before we get into the actual adultery aspects of it, what is it that, that he had done right here? What was he saying he was putting his trust in? In his beauty. Now, this is very interesting. And by the way, the beauty came from where? From God himself. So God gave him his beauty, and then he got all puffed up about it. Isn't that strange? Instead of being humbled by the fact that he had been chosen by God, instead he becomes all puffed up by it. Now, what verses did Kay take us to so that we could see that? Do you remember? What about chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Chronicles? Go to, the, go to those and take a look there. 
in chapter 8, he talks about Solomon built, initially building the, the temple, correct? It talks about him from that, from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord and until it was finished, so the house of the Lord was completed. Then Solomon did these other things, right? So it talks about Solomon carrying out the work of building the temple in that very first part of chapter, or the conclusion part of chapter 8 of Second Chronicles. Then it goes into chapter 9, and as soon as that beautiful temple is built, what's the next event that's recorded for us that relates to this chapter 16 where he, he becomes basically puffed up with the, the splendor of his glory, the beauty that God had given to him? He did begin to show it off. And how far had his, his beauty basically been talked about throughout the world? All the way to Bathsheba, no, all the way to Sheba, right? The queen of Sheba, not Bathsheba, the queen of Sheba, right? She heard of the fame, the fame of Solomon, and she comes in, and what, and what happens in that particular account that you looked at? What, is the, what does the queen of Sheba say about Solomon's God? Did you see it in verse 8? There's a really cool statement in there. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that while he is being all boastful and prideful about his beauty, that by the way, God gave him, right? Gave to him through this lineage of this promise to this nation. But Sheba, when she shows up, this queen of Sheba, she says, blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on his throne as king over your your Lord God, because your God loved Israel in establishing them forever. So she sees the covenant establishment and how he got his glory. Therefore, he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. Very interesting, right? Because what do we find out happens next with Solomon? What happens in Second Kings 11? Oh, my gosh. It is very sad. Yes. So, pardon? It's all those wives corrupted him. Yeah. So how did he get all those wives, sweetheart? He, they, yeah, he, they just showed up. It, was, it wasn't his fault, right? <laughs> so in, in, yes, it was. So in 1 Kings 11, 1 to 13, what we see is that, that God has established this kingdom through Solomon and Solomon's pride gets him all puffed up. And what, what happens, what does it say about, uh, what happens after pride? The fall. And so in his case, his pride took him into this fall of falling into the arms of these many women, right? Whom God, by the way, had told him what? Do not marry foreign wives. Interesting to me is that he didn't say to him, don't marry more than one wife. and Don't only have one wife from your own nation. He just said, don't take many wives. Interesting. I, I think that's interesting. I want to ask God about that when I get to heaven. But now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, the Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for surely they will do what? They will turn your heart away from me after their gods. And what happened? 
That's what happened. Now, I think it's very interesting because verse 6 is a very telling verse. What does it say in verse 6? Okay, your translation is different. Give me another translation. There you go. Very good. That's the one I want. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's a significant phrase. Now, Carol, tell me on your list that you have of all those kings, what is the repeated phrase there about the kings? Or they did evil in the sight of the Lord, right? Does it that right? So in the repeated pattern, one of the ones in there is uh, Ahab. Does anyone remember the, the? Is it King Ahab? That, if I got that one right, Ahab and Jezebel. And what do we know about Ahab? Was he good or bad? bad. Really bad guy, right? And in the conclusion of Ahab's lineage, it says of of Ahab he did evil in the sight of the Lord, right? And what do we see about King Solomon? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Wow. That is not good. And as a consequence, what does God do to Solomon's reigning position? He tears the kingdom out of his hand. So symbolically, we see him being cast out of God's promised land. He's saying, however, for the sake of your father, David, because of my covenant with him, I will delay my judgment. But but buddy, I am judging you. Right. But it's interesting that that. What we see in the lineage is the record that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. We do know that God was gracious to him in some ways, and it was a grace that he really hadn't earned. But why did God do that? What had God done with his son or with his father? Yes. That's a good point, Lisa. Good point is don't remember how many houses did he build? Not just the house of the Lord, but he built many. As a matter of fact, of all those wives that he had, and he had hundreds of them, plus, plus all the concubines, right? So this man built many, many houses and, and um, high places and set up altars and... Uh, he did all kinds of things, which it ultimately, in the end, it says that he was not faithful to the Lord and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yes. If Solomon did right in the book of Ecclesiastes, though, could we maybe think that maybe he repented of it when he was, it says in there that it was all painful, all the wives and the kids and all that. So maybe when he got older, maybe he repented and Potentially. If, I mean, if Potentially. Right. Potentially. Potentially, James, I don't know. The thing is, is all we can go by in Scripture is what does it, what does it say? And if you are doing like I had said, what Carol showed me this morning was this list of all these kings throughout the generations, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did evil. And the ultimate charge against Solomon in his reign was he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So whether that happened after, we don't know. So it's pretty hard. Just because he was wise... 
how many people do you know have, you know, seem to seem to know a lot, but they don't really live by it, you know? Uh huh. Yeah. Well, th that's a whole other conversation. I don't. I. I would say if I just go by what I know Scripture tells me, my say, my answer would be, he is he is equal with with King Ahab. And Ahab never accepted the word. Yeah. So I mean, because if the record is he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and that's the final record that we have of him, then that's the one I have to go by. But I don't know. Only God knows. That's right. I would like to think that maybe he repented. That would be good. But we don't know that. Yes. You asked why he thought it was okay to have all those wives. Mm -hmm. uh, look at his father. Yeah. Yes, he true. Have, you know, true. We, we think about his seven hundred and three hundred, but yes, yes. I thought it. I thought it was interesting because you know Pastor Rob just taught on David, the sin of David with Bathsheba this this week in, in services. And I thought to myself, that's very interesting because from the time of uh, up to the point of David's sin with Bathsheba, the kingdom was growing and getting stronger and bigger and things were going really well, right? Glory years. But then from the time of David's sin with Bathsheba onward, what, was, what began to happen? It started to go down, down, down. It, it never really got back to its its place where where it was initially established by God. So that's that's a really interesting insight on that. Okay, so let's go back to this. The covenant of the law is the next thing that we did look at, but we only looked at it with one verse. Excuse me, one verse. That was at Exodus 3, 8, right? But we know on the whole about the, about the Exodus. What happened in the process of the Exodus? We see first that Abraham's descendants are what? They have been enslaved and now they're what? Oh, yeah. Or they're brought out, exactly, or set, or set out, set free. They're brought out of Egypt. Now, that's what we looked at in Exodus 3.8, was the fact that they had been brought out of their captivity. Because he had said they were going to be in captivity for those 400 years. He'd already told them that back when he made that initial covenant with Abraham. So now they're brought out. We didn't look at them, but there's all kinds of things that happened when the law was made with him, right? He's, he gave them the law at Mount Sinai. When he gave them the law, what kind of things did he impose upon them? What did he tell them? What did he give them? The, yeah, those moral things. Those Ten Commandments, right? And in Deuteronomy, we've already looked at this, but Deuteronomy 28 and 29, was this an unconditional or a conditional it was conditional. He said, if you obey, what? Obey, obey and, and you'll, be, you'll be blessed. And if you disobey, you'll be cursed. That's right. Disobey, and they'll be cursing. Right? So, in that, now that's in Deuteronomy 
uh, 28 and 29, basically. The Ten Commandments are in Deuteronomy 10, if you want to go back and look at that. If you, but if you read through the whole thing, you see that there are things. When he gave them the Ten Commandments, what did he immediately follow those Ten Commandments with, by the way? Do you remember? In the unfolding story plan? He says, okay, you've got these laws. You've got to keep them. Then what did he give to them so that when they failed them, the sacrificial system. He gave them the, all the information, all the things that they need to know about the temple and about how to, how to offer sacrifice to God when they broke them. Boy, talk about a God of grace. I think that's interesting. So Ten Commandments, we have a sacrificial system is given, meaning the temple, uh, articles and so forth, right? Um, or the tabernacle is what it would have been called at that time. When in Deuteronomy 29, when he says, obey me and I'll do this, and if you disobey, I'll do that, what was he forming at that point then for these people? Where, where were they when this was all taking place? They were in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Where were they about to enter? Under the pro- when they got on the promised land, then why was God giving them this Ten Commandments and these laws and these things? Huh? Yeah, to make them a nation, basically, and to give them law. Right? He, they needed to have a, a worship system, and they need to have a judicial system to live by, correct? So this was all about uh, establishing a nation. Okay, so now let's compare these two covenants. This one in the Abrahamic covenant up here, this one, however, w- w- is it unconditional? No, it is definitely conditional. Um, is this one forever? If they break it, what happens? They get cast off the land, correct? So it is, it is not a forever. It's a temporal thing. And the fact that we have... Um, Blessings and cursings, then, is this in relationship to what you would call grace? No, it's by works, right? What happens in the New Testament? What is, how does uh, Paul compare the covenant of the law with the new covenant that we enter into? Yeah, is it by law? Is it by, is it by the law that you came into this, or is it by grace that you came into this, right? It, so, he, right. so in this one is by this one is, um, does not result in salvation as this one did. It's only a law, and it's a law because what kind of a law is it? Is it for the individual? It's a national. It's a national covenant. Wow, what a huge difference between these two. This one being the law and this one being the Abrahamic covenant. They are very distinctively different, right? Now, if we go into the New Testament, what do we know about the law? Is the law good or is it evil? It was good. What was the purpose then for the law? It was to teach us, number one, it teaches us about sin. Our need for Christ. It also points to Christ, didn't it? It, Its very nature is that it teaches them about who Christ is. As a matter of fact, when you look at the temple articles, Jesus even identified. He says, I am the 
bread of life. I am the door. I am the light of the world, right? So he went through all these things, and he said, and he said that these things symbolically represent me, right? So we know that they point to Christ. We know that the purpose for them, he says, let me just give you some references. It teaches us about uh, uh, sin. Let, go to Romans 7, 12, and 13 for that one. The fact that it's to pointing us to Christ, it actually says in Galatians 3.24, it's a tutor that leads us to Christ. Okay? It's a tutor. Uh, and that's in Galatians 3.24. And you'll have all these verses, by the way. And then how long was it to be in place? Since it's not a forever, it, it is a temporal thing. How long was it supposed to be in place, the law? Until what happened? <laughs> until the Christ would come, until the seed would come. Are you guys starting to put this all together now? Until the seed would come. Then it was supposed to be done. We're finished with it. That one... It's also in Galatians 3. That Galatians 3 is really a valuable little chapter, by the way. Um, it gives you all the insights that you need to understand about the Abrahamic covenant and how the law and them relate to one another and what the purpose of the law was. The law was temporal. It was a national covenant. That particular law gave them governing uh, principles for the nation as a people, how they would live. That's how we we did our Leviticus study. We went in, we saw how the people were told to worship, how they were to dress, what they were to eat, what they were to not do, um, how, how they were to treat one another, how they were to deal with different kinds of breaking of certain laws, how they were to execute judgments. There was all kinds of judicial things that came into place underneath the law, right? And that was to be in place until what? This new and things. Now, where in Ezekiel 16 does he start to talk about another covenant that's going to come? Yeah, verse starting in verse 16. Nevertheless, first of all, he says, nevertheless, I will remember. Okay, I'm almost done. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant, right? So he's talking about his Abrahamic covenant, that he's going to give him a land, a seed, and a nation, right? That he's going to bless the world. That's that seed that's promised there. And he says, I'm going to remember my covenant. I'm also going to even remember my, co my, my other covenant where I was placing you on the land until I would bring all these things to their fulfillment. He says, but I will remember my covenant with you that I promised you the land. Right? That's going back to the Abrahamic covenant. And he's saying, and, and I will do that. And he says, but not only will I remember that covenant, but what else will I do? And I will what? I will, uh-oh, there's interesting. That's not talking about the law, is it? I'm going to establish with you an everlasting covenant. So what is that alluding to? That's the new covenant that we are in right now. That's the one it's alluding to. It says, and then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters. What time frame in history is that talking about? 
when the Jews, the Samaritans, the, the Sodomites, the Edomites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the, the Ammonites, all, when I give all these back to you, when I give you back the fullness of whatever it is that I'm going to give to you, he says, when is that going to happen? That's talking about the millennial kingdom, isn't it? Even though we know that there was a short-term fulfillment of some of these things that God is promising to them here, when he brings them back on the land in the days of, of Nehemiah and Ezra and so forth, we know that ultimately what he's talking about here has not yet happened. They do not yet have their hearts fully committed to God, do they? Did they have full hearts committed to the Lord when they came back on the land in the days of Nehemiah? What happened that followed that? Eventually in 70 AD, what did God do? He destroyed the land and then did what with them again? Dispersed them again. And they haven't been coming back to their land until when? 1948. It is a vicious cycle, isn't it? And eventually God is going to bring about the fulfillment of though he says, and thus I will, however, I will one day, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know what? That I am the Lord. And this takes me to Romans chapter 11 where he speaks about the covenant and he says, and in that day I will do for Israel what I promised her. I will fulfill my covenant to her because my promises are, does he make another word? Irrevocable. My promises are, that was close. My <laughs> promises are irrevocable. And so God will fulfill it. And that's what he says here. So, so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I have forgiven you for all that you have done. There's no forgiveness under this one. There's, there is forgiveness under this one. It's a promise for a seed, which is Christ who at this time in history had not yet come. So this, when he makes these statements at the end of Ezekiel, he's speaking about that future, future. this new covenant that's to come ahead in Christ. Isn't that awesome? So he took them through a journey, and he pointed out all their sins. And we, we, you know, we could have certainly spent a lot of time talking about all those specifics. You had a chance to look at those this week in your homework. I hope those were were interesting to you but the more important thing here is that we get the connection of the promises of god the covenants of god and the, the fact that he is going to fulfill even yet for israel what he has promised them